Pushkin. You can find inspiring stories almost anywhere. For instance, check out the co-founders of Girls Who Do Interiors. This Miami-based design company was started by three friends when they were still in school. And right from the start, they turned to Chase for Business for everything from banking and payment acceptance to credit cards. And they handle them all in one place with the Chase mobile app. It's so important to have that kind of help when you're just starting out. Learn more at chaseforbusiness.com. Make more of what's yours. Chase mobile app is available for select mobile devices. Message and data rates may apply. J.P. Morgan Chase Bank N.A. member FDIC. The most innovative companies are going further with T-Mobile for Business. The PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with AI coaching tools and 5G-connected cameras. AAA is getting more drivers back on the road fast with location telematics. And the Las Vegas Grand Prix is powering race day operations with 5G connectivity, giving fans an experience at the speed they deserve. This is Accelerating Innovation with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at tmobile.com slash now. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job. And we have to find out, who did they kill? It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling, because I was like, "This this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. From Pushkin Industries, this is Deep Background, the show where we explore the stories behind the stories in the news. I'm Noah Feldman. Since four in the morning on the day after Donald Trump was elected, it's been clear to me that democracy in the United States is facing a kind of stress test. In the months that followed that, Brexit kicked in, and we discovered that the United States is not alone in this regard. Indeed, those who care a lot about democracy worldwide have worried that everywhere in the globe, democracy is in retreat, under attack, and under pressure. To discuss these challenges that democracy faces today, I'm joined by David Runciman, who's a professor of politics at Cambridge University. He's the author of two highly relevant books, one called How Democracy Ends, published in the United States in 2018, and the other, Where Power Stops, The Making and Unmaking of Presidents and Prime Ministers, which is coming out in 2019. Professor Runciman is also the host of the Talking Politics podcast, produced by the London Review of Books. David, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. You've written a fascinating book called How Democracy Ends, in which you characterize democracy as having hit a midlife 
crisis. Um, I am somewhere in midlife myself. I don't know if you count yourself in that same category of life, but tell us something about why you think democracy is hitting a midlife crisis and what you think a midlife crisis looks like. So I think full disclosure, I am, uh, and people always say to me that presumably I'm writing about myself and I'm just transposing it onto democracy. And I don't think I am. But the reason I characterized it like that is I do think we're in the middle of this story, particularly in the older democracy. So I don't think it's a midlife crisis in Hungary um, because that democracy is too young. But the democracies that are really well established since the Second World War are in political terms in a kind of middle age. And my feeling about a midlife crisis is that its characteristic is a desire to change and at the same time a real resistance to change because we're comfortable, because we're well off, because we're prosperous, because we're settled in our ways, because actually a lot of what we are angry about we're also deeply familiar with. And it's that kind of quality to our democracies, and by our I mean mine and yours, I mean particularly Brexit democracy and Trump democracy. There is a lot of acting out going on here, but it's middle-aged acting out. It's not wild young person acting out. It's that desire for something new, something maybe exciting, along with a, a really deep reluctance to embrace what newness means. So you know, we, we kick away at our system, we, we're angry with it, we shake it up a bit, but deep down we don't want anything different. May I ask about the the midlife there model? You mentioned the Second World War, but both British and American democracies, at least at their present scales, are really products of the, the middle of the 19th century. And so they've been actually around for, for a good long time, not just since the Second World War. If one thinks of post-World War II democracies, one thinks of Germany and of Japan, perhaps some of the other European democracies. Are, are, can we really be described, yours or mine, as being in midlife, or are we at the edge of our dotage, as a, as a North Korean had to say about my president? It's a really good question. I, I think it's a mixture of both in that some of the characteristics of German democracy or Japanese democracy, we're in the same historical arc. So mass franchise, mass communication, professionalized political party, democracy, it's a 20th century product in the British and American case, you can probably take it back to the First World War. I don't think you can take it back much further. What makes ours different is that that form of democracy was channeled through institutions and institutional arrangements that are much older. And in, in the case of the British state, maybe it goes all the way back to 1688. In the American state, it goes back to the end of, of the 18th century. So our institutions have that really elderly feel to them. <laughs> the Electoral College, the House of Lords, the way the British Parliament operates often strikes many people in the 21st century as feeling not just old, but antique. And yet some of the qualities that make our democracy democracy, everyone gets a vote at election time. People try and communicate with the broadest possible uh, cross-section of a literate and at some level informed population. That's a more recent thing but it's still relatively old. I mean, even if you take it back 100 years, say in the British or American case, you take it back to 1918, 100 years for a political system, it doesn't make it decrepit, but it means that it has outlasted the living memory of any human being who currently inhabits it. So no one can remember anything different. And that's what gives it that kind of middling quality to me. It's not dying, 
ending is something very different from dying. You, know, you can end in an open way. There is something you know, called being open-ended. Um, and ending is also about transition, whereas death is about death. So we're in the middle. But I think over that 100-year period, that combination of a way of doing politics where the parties are the same. So in your country, in my country, they have the same names. The, the Labour Party, our current opposition party, is something that was born roughly 100 years ago as a mass professional political party. Labour, Conservative, Republican, Democrat, of course, these parties have been through changes over this period. But, you know, that gives them in political terms, extraordinary roots and longevity, but also they're tired. Um, they feel tired. They feel tired to me. They don't feel dead. Um, they could evolve. They could also have quite a lot of life left in them, decades of life left in them, but they feel tired. And it's that kind of quality of tiredness rather than panic, despair, collapse that I was trying to capture. It sounds a bit like the midlife person that you have in mind is driving a car that is perhaps in many ways 100 years old and has been patched together and pieced together and changed and transformed. And that's the institutions that you're describing, the political parties, some of our constitutional institutions in the US, which change very, very slowly, the, the electoral college comes to mind. And so here we are in midlife, but equipped not with the latest, coolest machinery or computers or software that would help us deal with the current circumstances, but rather to some degree constrained or limited by, by those institutions. Yeah, I mean, I'm happy with that analogy. and I do have a variant on that in my book where I describe Donald Trump as being like the motorbike that the middle-aged man buys, partly because there is that feeling in a midlife crisis, the car is old or the other analogy you could draw here is that the marriage is old or the relationship is old. You know, you've been stuck in something or with something for years or decades. You're frustrated with it. You have a sense that it's over familiar. It served you well in the past, but you have a feeling that somehow it's not quite fit for purpose anymore. One classic midlife response is to think, well, I need the up-to-date version of this thing. So I need the motorbike or I need the affair. Or I need, you know, I need to find the new version of this thing. When it, that's not the issue here. Um, you're not going to solve your midlife crisis because you're frustrated with your car by buying a motorbike. And that's what it feels like to me is that, yes, these institutions are old and tired. They're also adaptable. So in a way, they're not like a car from 100 years ago. They're like a car that has been updated regularly, and yet we can still see the original model behind it. But the idea that somehow the solution to this is just a faster car the latest model, rather than to ask ourselves genuinely, if we want this thing that we call democracy to work and to continue for another hundred years, we've probably got to think much harder about how we're different, how the societies that we live in are different. You can't just plug in a, a faster, newer version of this thing and think it's going to make all the difference. What I think that we're missing always when we think about what's wrong with our democracy is genuinely thinking about the future. And you know we, we can leave this image in a moment, but that's the other thing about a midlife crisis. It's often nostalgia. You wish you were younger. <laughs> you, you want the moment when you could drive the car fast. So if Donald Trump then is the, is the motorbike, um, Brexit is the walking out on one's spouse and going walkabout. Yeah, it is. And it's, and it's that thing of it, underneath it, there's a kind of complacency too, which is a characteristic of this kind of psychology, which is people are frustrated and angry, but they also believe we can take this risk 
Maybe our marriage will survive it. You know, maybe we won't crash the motorbike because we're older and wiser. We're conflicted about these things. We want to change, but deep down we don't want to change. And what people do in middle age when they have that feeling is they do something impetuous and impulsive, but not actually long-lasting. The thing that we're missing is the long-lasting reform. One of the things that representative democracy was meant to do from the start, according to its theorists at least, was to protect government against impulsive acts by the public. And that's one reason why the referendum would have been very much doubted as a good way of doing business by certainly by 18th century theorists of democracy. And then in the 19th century, some people began to argue that after all, the referendum was a more direct uh, direct way of reaching the people. I wanted to ask you a question that I've really been obsessed with in watching from across the Atlantic, the, the entire Brexit meltdown. And that is, why at this moment in time did Britain use a referendum when it's in possession of you know the most evolved representative democratic institutions that there are? Because it's frequently struck me that the impossibility for parliament of working out a solution to Brexit has come from the fact that there was a referendum with a yes or no question attached to it. And then that was being pushed upon an institution very different, a representative institution that has got its own internal logic and its own internal structures of politics. So why the referendum? And am I right that the referendum's mismatch with parliamentary government has been part of the problem? You definitely are right. I think there is a context here, which is the Brexit referendum was not the first referendum. So it was one of a series Governments had recourse to referendums in Britain for nearly a decade now. So there was one about changing the voting system. There was more famously one about Scottish independence. And the conclusion that I think that government in particular, the David Cameron government, drew was that referendums are a good fit with representative parliamentary democracy when the answer basically comes back as no, no change. And that therefore they are a useful outlet. You give the people a chance to have their moment, their flirtation with radical change. They will come to their senses. They will sort of snap out of it when they realize just how dangerous the motorbike is or whatever, or the relationship. And they won't do the really dangerous thing. What we've discovered with the first referendum, when the answer didn't come back, no change. The answer came back, change, please. We don't know what change means. We just want change. And you hear anecdotally all the time in Britain when people are asked why they voted for this. They wanted some form of change. It was an expression of frustration. There is no fit because then Parliament has to decide what change means. And Parliament can't decide what change means because Parliament doesn't agree on the the necessary change. And the referendum doesn't tell you what change means. It just tells you there was an appetite for change. So the shock to the system has actually, again, come from a kind of complacency. And you really saw it in the Brexit referendum. I mean, I think the catastrophic mistake that the Cameron government made was that they thought that the Scottish referendum had shown them that when you get to the day of the choice, people shy away. And they didn't appreciate that the data set there was very small. It was just one. (laughs) Yes. And actually, I also think they learned the wrong lesson because there was this phrase used about the Scottish referendum, which was Project Fear, which was that what people shied away from in the end in Scotland from when they were offered independence was the thought of the possible chaos, particularly financial monetary chaos. What currency would we have? What would our relationship be with the Bank of England and so on? But actually, if you look at the evidence from the Scottish referendum and the polling evidence, people were moving towards independence. 
And they didn't shy away from it at the last minute because they suddenly got afraid. What happened was the politicians got afraid. And at the last minute, all of the leaders of the British parties, the Westminster parties, went up to Scotland and made all sorts of concessions to greater devolution, to more financial support. It wasn't fear on the part of the voters. It was fear on the part of the politicians. They didn't do that in the Brexit case. So in the last week, there wasn't from Cameron or anyone else a recognition that this thing was getting away from them and they would actually have to say something to the people who wanted change, which sounded like change. They carried on with fear. And now we are, as you described, in a position where we have two forms of democracy in this country that cannot be meshed together. But it wasn't, it wasn't a one-off. And I think the history of it only makes sense when you understand that it was the politicians who drew the wrong lesson about referendums because they thought it gave them a safe outlet. And the thing about safe outlets is that they're safe until they're not. And then you've got a disaster on your hands. It's a genuinely fascinating answer because it also explains another puzzle that I was never clear on, which is why it was conservatives in particular who would have taken this risk with the referendum since the referendum form, at least in its historical uh, form, is always thought to be precisely about populism. It's about the whole reason to have a referendum rather than going through the legislature is to get to the people on the theory that the politicians are in some way interfering with the with the will of the people and one has to get around them. And what I hear implicit in your answer, tell me if this is the right lesson to take away from what you're saying, is that it was in a way the nostalgic or um, aspirational view of the contemporary conservative party that thinks of the ordinary British voter as really very sensible in the end and likely to do what the conservative politician imagines ought to be done, at least what Cameron imagined ought to be done, that was the the driving force behind them making the, the mistaken inference from one or two data points. I definitely think that's part of it. Um, I think what we've discovered, and it's, it's clearly not just in this country, elections, both general elections and referendum results have been surprising people for a few years now. But there was also this feeling the Conservative Party often describes itself as the historically most successful election-winning machine in the Western world. It, it's been winning elections in one form or another for 200 years, and somehow it always stumbles across the right answer. And there is that feeling that the Conservative Party has an instinctive understanding of its people, and it didn't in this case. But there was also this other weird complacency at work, and I heard it a lot after the result. So the result profoundly shocked the party establishment, but it quickly adapted. Theresa May became Prime Minister. And the thought was, well, at least the thing that we have done as true conservatives is that we have co-opted populism. We, we offered this referendum. It didn't produce the result that we were expecting. But now that result can be channeled through the party. And we have killed our populist party. So the populist party was UKIP, Nigel Farage's party, which was polling pretty high in the run-up to the referendum. And then when they got what they wanted, leaving the EU... The Conservative Party just took it over and performed its historic mission, which was basically to take over whatever was on the table and conservatize it. That's a word, you know, make it fit conservative politics. And Theresa May and her supporters, I heard them saying for a year, 18 months, we have performed our historic function. We have killed populism in Britain. It's rampant in Europe. It's frankly rampant in the United States. You know, Donald Trump has just used populism and actually infected republicanism with it. We've done the opposite, they claimed. We have allowed a traditional conservative party to take it on and then basically to defang it. And they were wrong. So here we are three years later because they had no means of translating the referendum result into meaningful politics and they still haven't worked out how to do it. 
we have Boris Johnson about to become prime minister on a frankly populist Trumpish platform because he has got to compete with Nigel Farage. His party, UKIP, was killed and then reinvented itself as the Brexit party and is polling at double the level UKIP was ever polling at. There has always been in British conservatism a deep complacency, which is somehow, as long as it passes through us because we're conservatives, it will be all right. And even a party that's 200 years old is eventually going to make a fatal mistake. And I I know conservative politicians in this country who believe the British Conservative Party may be in its death throes. So British democracy, I don't think, is in its death throes. But one of its traditional parties, and maybe even both of them, could well be dying. So tell me a little bit about your view of, of Johnson. And in what way does someone who, you know, sociologically looks not so different from Cameron turn into a Trump figure? Um, Frankly, even six months ago, the prospect of Boris Johnson becoming prime minister looked very, very remote. So this is, British politics has turned around very, very quickly. And the reason Johnson is now seen by many conservatives as the answer is partly because May's failure was total. It's partly because the last thing that Theresa May did was to try and forge some bipartisan consensus to get her Brexit deal over the line, which meant negotiating with Jeremy Corbyn. And it's almost like Corbyn is not just our Bernie Sanders. He's, for many conservatives, he's further along the line to what they think of as Leninist catastrophe than that. He is to the left of Bernie Sanders on substantive policy, I think, for what that's worth, quite apart from any allegations of Leninism. Yeah. So what we had was a conservative leader offering to negotiate with someone who genuinely, I think, for Almost every conservative politician is beyond the pale. And, and that seemed to sort of trigger in the Conservative Party a desire for the politician who would never think that that kind of bipartisan consensus was a way to solve this problem. And it was almost a reaction to that that produced Johnson. Johnson's claim and he's repeated it throughout this campaign, which is about to end, but he's more or less already won it, is that he can be trusted because he was quite a successful mayor of London. But when he was mayor of London, if you looked at Johnson, you would have said he was another of that generation of conservative politicians of whom Cameron was another, who saw themselves as 21st century Thatcherites, and that Margaret Thatcher was their model. Margaret Thatcher is on no account a populist, and on no account was anything like a Trump politician. She was radical in her way, uh, but she was also small c conservative, particularly about institutions. So there was none of that sense that you get with the current generation of populists, that they're here actually to undercut the institutional basis of democratic politics. Margaret Thatcher was a classic politician. We've had 50 years of them, but that period may be coming to an end, who saw the challenge of democratic politics to test the institutions, to push them, but never to think about breaking them. And Johnson was one of those. It is the phenomenon of the last three or four years that has changed him into what looks like a more Trumpish politician. He's also a journalist. His journalism has always been, you know, the people have been trawling through it and have found statements which you would think would rule someone out from leading a mature democracy because of the implicit racism in a lot of it, the the imperialism, the, the nostalgia for a time when Britain ruled the world and people of different colours and different creeds knew their place. That's there in Johnson's past. But I think in his own mind, he would have thought, well, my journalism was kind of a sideshow to make me famous. 
And then my politics will be conventional Thatcherite politics. And I think he's noticed in the last two or three years that his journalism and that persona is the one that other populists around the world are using to win power. How far he's willing to push it, I don't know. But we're seeing signs of it already um, that he thinks that the, the climate has changed and he's changed with it. The way in which he's not Trump is that he is a professional politician. I mean, he's a journalist, but he's also a professional politician. He is flirting with this form of politics. And I think he's, he's trying it out. And no one knows in the British context how far you can go. The one other thing I would say about Boris Johnson is that, say Britain, like the United States, is a country where that kind of politics, populist, appealing to older voters, appealing to voters who didn't go to college, um, and speaking a language which flirts with racial stereotypes and other kinds of politics, which would five years ago have been thought to be outside the bounds of democratic decency. Say you can get to 40% with that. You know, Trump's ceiling, 40, 45%. 47 when he's lucky. But say 40 is the limit you can get to in in a British context. Well, we do not have a presidential system. We have a parliamentary system. And if Boris Johnson polls 40% at the next British general election, given the other parties will divide up the rest, he will be prime minister with a massive majority in parliament. if, If it is true that that kind of politics does undercut Farage, wins back the Farage people of the Conservative Party, and its ceiling is 40%, Johnson wins. And he's not stupid. So there is some political calculation at work here, too. One more question about Boris Johnson before we we start talking about other potential approaches to, to the midlife crisis. And it's this. A central theme in your brand, brand new book, Where Power Stops, is that power reveals, a phrase that you, I think, rightly attribute to Robert Caro and his fantastic books about uh, Lyndon Johnson. In the case of Johnson, he hasn't yet assumed power. And so... It's too soon to say with any confidence what it will reveal. But what you describe is somebody who has already had two sides, the professional politician side, a little bit more cautious and Thatcherite than the journalist side, much more outspoken, bordering on racism under some circumstances, capable of populism if that's what's called for. And they're in some sense in counterpoise with one another. And now if he does indeed take power and exercise it, I suppose we'll find out power will reveal which of these two he he really is or really means to be. And I guess the question I have is, do you have an instinct? Do you think that he is, it sounds like you don't think that he is at heart a populist or at heart a Thatcherite, but rather at heart something of an opportunist and that you think he'll go with whatever works. But I don't want to, to push an interpretation on you that isn't that isn't yours. Do you have an instinct about which way he will go in power if he does acquire power? So the, the lesson that I'm trying to draw is slightly different from the Caro one. So Caro's line is indeed that power reveals the true person, the true man, because he's writing about a man, Lyndon Johnson, and that when Johnson becomes president, Lyndon, not Boris, we discover that deep down there was a man of compassion there. And my argument is that most of these people don't really reveal anything about themselves in the highest office that we didn't know about them anyway. What we discover is more not who they are, but the nature of the power that can be wielded in these roles as president or prime minister. So in a way, with Johnson, we discovered more about what a president could do than who Lyndon Johnson really was. I don't think politicians change when they reach the top. If anything, I think they become more fixed because the person they were is what brought them to the top. 
what we will discover if and when Boris Johnson becomes prime minister is not who he really is. We know that. What we'll discover is what a man like that can do as prime minister. Can the office of prime minister be stretched so opportunistically beyond what we might have thought was possible over the last decades that a character like Johnson's, so in its way fickle, are so capable of playing both sides, is able to achieve things that someone like Theresa May couldn't. And the the character of the office of prime minister is changing, just as the character of the office of president is changing. And, and I think we get acclimatized so quickly. You know, we forget that Trump is doing things that would have seemed inconceivable five years ago. And I suspect with Johnson, the same will be true. But we will also find the limits. And in a sense, I think what we discover with these characters are the limits, but the limits aren't quite where we thought they were. And again, with Trump, we're finding that some of the things that we thought were limits aren't, but I think we're also finding that it's not that Trump has just achieved something with that office of president, which means that none of the old rules apply. Some of them still do. That leads me to then the real question of what is going to happen next in these midlife crises. You're careful not to say in either book that you have a solution or that there's a a simple answer of of where we're headed. But in both cases of the United States and, and of Britain, these crises generated by midlife are going to have some trajectory. They're going to come out somehow or other. I tend to agree with you that the presidency will survive Donald Trump, even if a bit changed, and no doubt um, the prime ministership will will survive Boris Johnson. The question I have is, what do you see as plausible routes out of these crises now? Not normative solutions, but possible paths that we might be following. So I increasingly think that we have to recognize that when we tell the story of democracy, we're telling these overlapping stories. There is the story of what we think of as democracy modern, liberal, representative, constitutional, mass franchise, mass communication, democracy, basically the 20th century story. And we could not just be in the middle of that. We might be quite late in that. And some of those institutions, I think, are in real trouble, of which political parties are first in the firing line, I think, especially the established political parties. Five, 10, 15 years down the line, that scene could look very, very different, I think. You can see these parties breaking up, So I think some of the institutions that are familiar, over-familiar to us could be in real trouble. But there's a longer story. There is the story of representative democracy, which does go back, particularly in the British and American case, not just 100 years, but 200 plus years. The idea that most of us don't do politics, except very, very occasionally, but we vote for people who do it for us. And that there is a group, sometimes called a class, who, who are the political class. I'm almost more interested in what's going to happen to that story And I think that one might be starting to slowly, very slowly break down too. So to go back to your question about referendums, I mean, it wasn't just a political calculation. There's also this sense, I think, from elected politicians that there is growing pressure from the voters for more direct input. I I am starting to think that there is a deeper story, you know, the 2,000-year-old story, 2,500-year-old story about democracy, which is the ancient Greek story about direct democracy, but also people feeling that what democracy gives you is not a quiet life, a comfortable life, prosperity. It also gives you a sense of control of your fate and that we have to recapture that. And we're going through the spasms of democratic societies where 
too many people for different reasons feel that giving that small group of professional politicians the ultimate decision means that we have lost control of our fate. I don't think this will end dramatically with something happening in the next five or 10 years that signals the end. I think it's a gradual unraveling of these 100, 200-year stories. But over the next decades, those institutions, and particularly the institutions that have anchored professional politics as we've known it for the last couple of generations, that's the thing that's going to unravel. And then, and when you look at that 100-year story, that incredible success story, the 20th century story, the democratic century, the liberal constitutional representative democratic century, the professional democratic century, and you look at our politics now, and you look at how fast everything else has changed, it does look not just tired and old, but it looks like it got stuck 20, 30 years ago, sort of at the dawn of the digital revolution. We must be on the cusp. I, I can't believe that in 10, 20 years' time, we won't look back to this period and see this was the beginning, not just of the unraveling, but of the transition to something that we would think of as genuinely 21st century democracy. And that will be more fragmented, more local, more digital, more direct, less professional, probably for a while more chaotic. It could be better. Now, the future is not determined by how democracy failed in the 1930s or the risks that we ran in the 1970s. The future is infinitely more open than the past. And this form of democracy has been really set in place for about 100 years now, 50 to 100 years. If it has an open future, it's going to look radically different. And say we're at the start of that, it's challenging, it's scary, but it could be hugely exciting. And I don't think we've I don't think we've opened our minds up to that yet enough because we're too preoccupied with Brexit and Trump. And say they are the signals not of fascism or populism or racism. I mean, they do signal those things, but say they're not the signal that that's what's coming down the track. They're signaling that what's coming down the track is meaningful change. They are not the meaningful change. There is optimism to be found in a midlife crisis too. It's very good to hear the uh, chastened realist nevertheless optimistic picture of what the future could hold. And I'm very grateful to you, David, for for speaking to us and, and sharing that. And then perhaps the next time we speak, we can talk about the end of the end and how old age reaches everyone, even if it doesn't come uh, in the form of of total collapse. But uh, we have some time for you to write your next book on, on that topic or, or another. Thank you again very much for your time. Thanks a lot. David Runciman likens the challenges facing democracy in Britain and the U.S. to a midlife crisis. And in his faintly optimistic view about how such midlife crises come to an end, he thinks that we'll slowly take on a better stage of life, one with gradual changes in institutions, rather than a genuine crash and burn for the institutions of democracy as we know them. Is he right? Well, to find that out, we're going to have to watch developments very, very closely. And we're going to have to pay special attention to the question of whether we actually develop new approaches and methods for solving our democratic problems, like changes in our fundamental political parties, or whether we actually, the way a lot of people do after a midlife crisis, just go back to the same old, same old. The test will come especially in the years after Britain, in fact, leaves the European Union, if it ultimately does, and after Donald Trump is no longer president of the United States. 
Then we'll see whether we return to ordinary politics, to ordinary politicians, or whether the changes wrought by this moment of crisis are lasting and significant. Runciman thinks they will be, but it seems entirely possible to me that we may end up right back where we started. Deep Background is brought to you by Pushkin Industries. Our producer is Lydia Jean Cott with engineering by Jason Gambrell and Jason Rostkowski. Our showrunner is Sophie McKibben. Our theme music is composed by Luis Guerra. Special thanks to the Pushkin Brass, Malcolm Gladwell, Jacob Weisberg, and Mia Lobel. I'm Noah Feldman. You can follow me on Twitter at Noah R. Feldman. This is Deep Background. It all started with two federal agents who heard a rumor. She mentions, well, there is this alleged murder to have taken place. There was just one problem. They had no clue who the victim was. We have to do our job, and we have to find out who did they kill. It had been 15 years since this alleged murder. Was it still possible to unearth the truth? I used to watch um, the Unsolved Mystery shows, and I often thought about calling because I was like, this is, this is not right. How can a person get killed and no one knows anything? I'm Jake Halpern, and this is Deep Cover, The Nameless Man. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. And if you want to hear the entire season right now, ad-free, subscribe to Pushkin Plus on our Apple Podcast show page or on pushkin.fm slash plus. Plus.